the law school of america the insanity defense also known as the mental disorder defense is an affirmative defense by excuse in a criminal case arguing that the defendant is not responsible for their actions due to an episodic or persistent psychiatric disease at the time of the criminal act this is contrasted with an excuse of provocation in which the defendant is responsible but the responsibility is lessened due to a temporary mental state it is also contrasted with the finding that a defendant cannot stand trial in a criminal case because a mental disease prevents them from effectively assisting counsel, from a civil finding in trusts and estates where a will is nullified because it was made when a mental disorder prevented a testator from recognizing the natural objects of their bounty, and from involuntary civil commitment to a mental institution, when anyone is found to be gravely disabled or to be a danger to themselves or to others. Exemption from full criminal punishment on such grounds dates back to at least the Code of Hammurabi. Legal definitions of insanity or mental disorder are varied, and include the Mnaton Rule, the Durham Rule, the 1953 British Royal Commission on Capital Punishment Report, the Ali Rule, American Legal Institute Model Penal Code Rule, and other provisions, often relating to a lack of mens rea, guilty mind. In the criminal laws of Australia and Canada, Statutory legislation enshrines the Mnaton rules, with the terms defense of mental disorder, defense of mental illness or not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder employed. Being incapable of distinguishing right from wrong is one basis for being found to be legally insane as a criminal defense. It originated in the Mnaton rule, and has been reinterpreted and modernized through more recent cases, such as People v. Cerevo. In the United Kingdom, Ireland, and the United States, use of the defense is rare. However, since the Criminal Procedure, Insanity and Unfitness to Plead, Act 1991, insanity pleas have steadily increased in the UK. Mitigating factors, including things not eligible for the insanity defense such as intoxication, or, more frequently, diminished capacity, may lead to reduced charges or reduced sentences. The defense is based on evaluations by forensic mental health professionals with the appropriate test according to the jurisdiction. Their testimony guides the jury, but they are not allowed to testify to the accused's criminal responsibility, as this is a matter for the jury to decide. Similarly, mental health practitioners are restrained from making a judgment on the ultimate issue whether the defendant is insane. Some jurisdictions require the evaluation to address the defendant's ability to control their behavior at the time of the offense, the volitional limb. A defendant claiming the defense is pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, NGRI or guilty but insane or mentally ill in some jurisdictions which could, if successful, may result in the defendant being committed to a psychiatric facility for an indeterminate period. Mitigating Factors and Diminished Capacity The United States Supreme Court, in Penry v. Lina, and the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, in Bigby v. Dretka, have been clear in their decisions that jury instructions in death penalty cases that do not ask about mitigating factors regarding the defendant's mental health violate the defendant's Eighth Amendment rights, saying that the jury is to be instructed to consider mitigating factors when answering unrelated questions. This ruling suggests specific explanations to the jury are necessary to weigh mitigating factors. Diminished responsibility or diminished capacity can be employed as a mitigating factor or partial defense to crimes and, in the United States, is applicable to more circumstances than the insanity defense. The Homicide Act 1957 is the statutory basis for the defense of diminished responsibility in England and Wales, whereas in Scotland it is a product of case law. The number of findings of diminished responsibility has been matched by a fallen on fitness to plead in insanity findings, Walker, 1968.
A plea of diminished capacity is different from a plea of insanity in that reason of insanity is a full defense while diminished capacity is merely a plea to a lesser crime. Non-compass mentis. Non-compass mentis, Latin, is a legal term meaning not of sound mind. Non-compass mentis derives from the Latin non meaning not, compass meaning having command or composed, and mentis, genitive singular of mens, meaning of mind. It is the direct opposite of compass mentis, of a sound mind. Although typically used in law, this term can also be used metaphorically or figuratively, for example, when one is in a confused state, intoxicated, or not of sound mind. The term may be applied when a determination of competency needs to be made by a physician for purposes of obtaining informed consent for treatments and, if necessary, assigning a surrogate to make healthcare decisions. While the proper sphere for this determination is in a court of law, this is practically, and most frequently, made by physicians in the clinical setting. In English law, the rule of non-compass mentis was most commonly used when the defendant invoked religious or magical explanations for behavior. Withdrawal or refusal of defense. Several cases have ruled that persons found not guilty by reason of insanity may not withdraw the defense in a habeas petition to pursue an alternative, although there have been exceptions in other rulings. In Colorado v. Connolly, 1997, the petitioner who had originally been found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed for 10 years to the jurisdiction of a psychiatric security review board, filed a pro se writ of habeas corpus and the court vacated his insanity acquittal. He was granted a new trial and found guilty of the original charges, receiving a prison sentence of 40 years. In the landmark case of Frendak v. United States in 1979, the court ruled that the insanity defense cannot be imposed upon an unwilling defendant if an intelligent defendant voluntarily wishes to forego the defense. Psychiatric treatments. Those found to have been not guilty by reason of mental disorder or insanity are generally then required to undergo psychiatric treatment in a mental institution, except in the case of temporary insanity, see below. In England and Wales, under the Criminal Procedure, Insanity and Unfitness to Plead, Act of 1991, amended by the Domestic Violence, Crime, and Victims Act, 2004 to remove the option of a guardianship order, the court can mandate a hospital order, a restriction order, where release from hospital requires the permission of the Home Secretary, a supervision and treatment order, or an absolute discharge. Unlike defendants who are found guilty of a crime, they are not institutionalized for a fixed period, but rather held in the institution until they are determined not to be a threat. Authorities making this decision tend to be cautious, and as a result, defendants can often be institutionalized for longer than they would have been incarcerated in prison. In Fuchavia, Louisiana, 1992, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that a person could not be held indefinitely. So far, in the United States, those acquitted of a federal offense by reason of insanity have not been able to challenge their psychiatric confinement through a writ of habeas corpus or other remedies. In Archuleta v. Hedrick, 2004, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit the court ruled persons found not guilty by reason of insanity and later want to challenge their confinement may not attack their initial successful insanity defense. The appellate court affirmed the lower court's judgment, having thus elected to make himself a member of that exceptional class of persons who seek verdicts of not guilty by reason of insanity, he cannot now be heard to complain of the statutory consequences of his election. The court held that no direct attack upon the final judgment of acquittal by reason of insanity was possible. It also held that the collateral attack that he was not informed that a possible alternative to his commitment was to ask for a new trial was not a meaningful alternative. Incompetency and Mental Illness 
An important distinction to be made is the difference between competency and criminal responsibility. The issue of competency is whether a defendant is able to adequately assist his attorney in preparing a defense, make informed decisions about trial strategy and whether to plead guilty, accept a plea agreement or plead not guilty. This issue is dealt with in UK law as fitness to plead. Competency largely deals with the defendant's present condition, while criminal responsibility addresses the condition at the time the crime was committed. In the United States, a trial in which the insanity defense is invoked typically involves the testimony of psychiatrists or psychologists who will, as expert witnesses, present opinions on the defendant's state of mind at the time of the offense. Therefore, a person whose mental disorder is not in dispute is determined to be sane if the court decides that despite a mental illness the defendant was responsible for the acts committed and will be treated in court as a normal defendant. If the person has a mental illness and it is determined that the mental illness interfered with the person's ability to determine right from wrong, and other associated criteria a jurisdiction may have, and if the person is willing to plead guilty or is proven guilty in a court of law, some jurisdictions have an alternative option known as either a guilty but mentally ill, GBMI, or a guilty but insane verdict. The GBMI verdict is available as an alternative to, rather than in lieu of, a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict. Michigan, 1975, was the first state to create a GBMI verdict, after two prisoners released after being found NGRI committed violent crimes within a year of release, one raping two women and the other killing his wife. Temporary Insanity The notion of temporary insanity argues that a defendant was insane during the commission of a crime, but they later regained their sanity after the criminal act was carried out. This legal defense is commonly used to defend individuals that have committed crimes of passion. The defense was first successfully used by U.S. Congressman Daniel Sickles of New York in 1859 after he had killed his wife's lover, Philip Barton P. History The concept of defense by insanity has existed since ancient Greece and Rome. However, in colonial America a delusional Dorothy Talby was hanged in 1638 for murdering her daughter, as at the time Massachusetts's common law made no distinction between insanity, or mental illness, and criminal behavior. Edward II, under English common law, declared that a person was insane if their mental capacity was no more than that of a wild beast, in the sense of a dumb animal, rather than being frenzied. The first complete transcript of an insanity trial dates to 1724. It is likely that the insane, like those under 14, were spared trial by ordeal. When trial by jury replaced this, the jury members were expected to find the insane guilty but then refer the case to the king for a royal pardon. From 1500 onwards, juries could acquit the insane, and detention required a separate civil procedure. 1985. The Criminal Lunatics Act 1800, passed with retrospective effect following the acquittal of James Hatfield, mandated detention at the regent's pleasure, indefinitely, even for those who, although insane at the time of the offense, were now sane. The Mnitten Rules of 1843 were not a codification or definition of insanity but rather the responses of a panel of judges to hypothetical questions posed by Parliament in the wake of Daniel Mnitten's acquittal for the homicide of Edward Drummond, whom he mistook for British Prime Minister Robert Peel. The rules define the defense as at the time of committing the act the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason, from disease of the mind, as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or as not to know that what he was doing was wrong. The key is that the defendant could not appreciate the nature of his actions during the commission of the crime. In Ford v. Wainwright, 1986, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the common law rule that the insane cannot be executed. 
It further stated that a person under the death penalty is entitled to a competency evaluation and to an evidentiary hearing in court on the question of his competency to be executed. In Wainwright v. Greenfield, the court ruled that it was fundamentally unfair for the prosecutor to comment during the court proceedings on the petitioner's silence invoked as a result of a Miranda warning. The prosecutor had argued that the respondent's silence after receiving Miranda warnings was evidence of his sanity. United States Law In the United States, variances in the insanity defense between states, and in the federal court system, are attributable to differences with respect to three key issues. 1. Availability whether the jurisdiction allows a defendant to raise the insanity defense. 2. Definition, when the defense is available, what facts will support a finding of insanity, and 3. Burden of proof, whether the defendant has the duty of proving insanity or the prosecutor has the duty of disproving insanity, and by what standard of proof. Availability. In the United States, a criminal defendant may plead insanity in federal court, and in the state courts of every state except for Idaho. Kansas, Montana, and Utah. However, defendants in states that disallow the insanity defense may still be able to demonstrate that a defendant was not capable of forming intent to commit a crime as a result of mental illness. In Collar v. Kansas, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court held, in a 6-3 ruling, that a state does not violate the due process clause by abolishing an insanity defense based on a defendant's incapacity to distinguish right from wrong. The court emphasized that state governments have broad discretion to choose laws defining the precise relationship between criminal culpability and mental illness. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Definition. Each state in the federal court system currently uses one of the following tests to define insanity for purposes of the insanity defense. Over its decades of use the definition of insanity has been modified by statute with changes to the availability of the insanity defense, what constitutes legal insanity whether the prosecutor or defendant has the burden of proof, the standard of proof required at trial, trial procedures, and to commitment and release procedures for defendants who have been acquitted based on a finding of insanity. Mnitin test. The guidelines for the Mnitin rules, state, among other things, and evaluating the criminal responsibility for defendants claiming to be insane were settled in the British courts in the case of Daniel Mnitin in 1843. Mnitin was a Scottish woodcutter who killed the secretary to the Prime Minister, Edward Drummond, in a botched attempt to assassinate the Prime Minister himself. Mnitin apparently believed that the Prime Minister was the architect of the myriad of personal and financial misfortunes that had befallen him. During his trial, nine witnesses testified to the fact that he was insane, and the jury acquitted him finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. The House of Lords asked the judges of the common law courts to answer five questions on insanity as a criminal defense, and the formulation that emerged from their review, that a defendant should not be held responsible for his actions only if, as a result of his mental disease or defect, he, I, did not know that his act would be wrong, or, two, did not understand the nature and quality of his actions became the basis of the law governing legal responsibility in cases of insanity in England. Under the rules, loss of control because of mental illness was no defense. The Mnitin rule was embraced with almost no modification by American courts and legislatures for more than 100 years, until the mid-20th century. Durham-New Hampshire Test The strict Mnitin standard for the insanity defense was widely used until the 1950s and the case of Durham v. United States case. In the Durham case, the court ruled that a defendant is entitled to acquittal if the crime was the product of his mental illness, for example, crime would not have been committed but for the disease. The test, 
also called the product test, is broader than either the Mnitin test or the irresistible impulse test. The test has more lenient guidelines for the insanity defense, but it addressed the issue of convicting mentally ill defendants, which was allowed under the Mnitin rule. However, the Durham standard drew much criticism because of its expansive definition of legal insanity. Model Penal Code Test The Model Penal Code, published by the American Law Institute, provides a standard for legal insanity that serves as a compromise between the strict Mnitin rule, the lenient Durham ruling, and the irresistible impulse test. Under the MPC standard, which represents the modern trend, a defendant is not responsible for criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct as a result of mental disease or defect he lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. The test thus takes into account both the cognitive and volitional capacity of insanity. Federal Courts After the perpetrator of President Reagan's assassination attempt was found not guilty by reason of insanity, Congress passed the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. Under this act, the burden of proof was shifted from the prosecution to the defense and the standard of evidence in federal trials was increased from a preponderance of evidence to clear and convincing evidence. The Ali test was discarded in favor of a new test that more closely resembled Mnitin's. Under this new test only perpetrators suffering from severe mental illnesses at the time of the crime could successfully employ the insanity defense. The defendant's ability to control himself or herself was no longer a consideration. The act also curbed the scope of expert psychiatric testimony and adopted stricter procedures regarding the hospitalization and release of those found not guilty by reason of insanity. Guilty but mentally ill. As an alternative to the insanity defense, some jurisdictions permit a defendant to plead guilty but mentally ill. A defendant who is found guilty but mentally ill may be sentenced to mental health treatment, at the conclusion of which the defendant will serve the remainder of their sentence in the same manner as any other defendant. Burden of Proof In a majority of states, the burden of proving insanity is placed on the defendant, who must prove insanity by a preponderance of the evidence. In a minority of states, the burden is placed on the prosecution, who must prove sanity beyond reasonable doubt. In federal court, and in Arizona, the burden is placed on the defendant, who must prove insanity by clear and convincing evidence. Controversy. The insanity plea is used in the U.S. criminal justice system in less than 1% of all criminal cases. Little is known about the criminal justice system and the mentally ill. There is no definitive study regarding the percentage of people with mental illness who come into contact with police, appear as criminal defendants, are incarcerated, or are under community supervision. Furthermore, the scope of this issue varies across jurisdictions. Accordingly, advocates should rely as much as possible on statistics collected by local and state government agencies. Some U.S. states have begun to ban the use of the insanity defense, and in 1994 the Supreme Court denied a petition of certiorari seeking review of a Montana Supreme Court case that upheld Montana's abolition of the defense. Idaho, Kansas, and Utah have also banned the defense. However, a mentally ill defendant-slash-patient can be found unfit to stand trial in these states. In 2001, the Nevada Supreme Court found that their state's abolition of the defense was unconstitutional as a violation of federal due process. In 2006, the Supreme Court decided Clark v. Arizona upholding Arizona's limitations on the insanity defense. In that same ruling, the court noted we have never held that the Constitution mandates an insanity defense, nor have we held that the Constitution does not so require. In 2020, the Supreme Court decided Collar v. Kansas upholding Kansas' abolition of the insanity defense, 
stating that the Constitution does not require Kansas to adopt an insanity test that turns on a defendant's ability to recognize that his crime was morally wrong. The insanity defense is also complicated because of the underlying differences in philosophy between psychiatrists-slash-psychologists and legal professionals. In the United States, a psychiatrist, psychologist or other mental health professional is often consulted as an expert witness in insanity cases, but the ultimate legal judgment of the defendant's sanity is determined by a jury, not by a mental health professional. In other words, mental health professionals provide testimony and professional opinion but are not ultimately responsible for answering legal questions. Canadian Law Criminal Code Provisions the defense of mental disorder is codified in Section 16 of the Criminal Code which states, in part, 16. 1. No person is criminally responsible for an act committed or an omission made while suffering from a mental disorder that rendered the person incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of the act or omission or of knowing that it was wrong. To establish a claim of mental disorder the party raising the issue must show on a balance of probabilities first that the person who committed the act was suffering from a disease of the mind, and second, that at the time of the offense they were either 1, unable to appreciate the nature and quality of the act, or 2, did not know it was wrong. The meaning of the word wrong was determined in the Supreme Court case of R. V. Chalk which held that wrong was not restricted to legally wrong but to morally wrong as well. Post-verdict conditions. The current legislative scheme was created by the Parliament of Canada after the previous scheme was found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Canada in R. V. Swain. The new provisions also replaced the old insanity defense with the current mental disorder defense. Once a person is found not criminally responsible, NCR, they will have a hearing by a review board within 45 days, 90 days if the court extends the delay. A review board is established under Part 20.1 of the Criminal Code and is composed of at least three members, a person who is a judge or eligible to be a judge, a psychiatrist, and another expert in the relevant field, such as social work, criminology, or psychology. Parties at a review board hearing are usually the accused, the Crown, and the hospital responsible for the supervision or assessment of the accused. A review board is responsible for both accused persons found NCR or accused persons found unfit to stand trial on account of mental disorder. A review board dealing with an NCR offender must consider two questions, whether the accused is a significant threat to the safety of the public and, if so, what the least onerous and least restrictive restrictions on the liberty of the accused should be in order to mitigate such a threat. Proceedings before a review board are inquisitorial rather than adversarial. Often the review board will be active in conducting an inquiry. Where the review board is unable to conclude that the accused is a significant threat to the safety of the public, the review board must grant the accused an absolute discharge, an order essentially terminating the jurisdiction of the criminal law over the accused. Otherwise, the review board must order that the accused be either discharged subject to conditions or detained in a hospital, both subject to conditions. The conditions imposed must be the least onerous and least restrictive necessary to mitigate any danger the accused may pose to others. Since the review board is empowered under criminal law powers under S. 9127 of the Constitution Act, 1867 the sole justification for its jurisdiction is public safety. Therefore, the nature of the inquiry is the danger the accused may pose to public safety rather than whether the accused is cured. For instance, many sick accused persons are discharged absolutely on the basis that they are not a danger to the public while many sane accused are detained on the basis that they are dangerous. Moreover, the notion of significant threat to the safety of the public is a criminal threat. This means that the review board must find that the threat posed by the accused is of a criminal nature. 
While proceedings before a review board are less formal than in court, there are many procedural safeguards available to the accused given the potential indefinite nature of Part 20.1. Any party may appeal against the decision of the review board. In 1992 when the new mental disorder provisions were enacted, Parliament included capping provisions which were to be enacted at a later date. These capping provisions limited the jurisdiction of a review board over an accused based on the maximum potential sentence had the accused been convicted, for example, there would be a cap of five years if the maximum penalty for the index offense is five years. However, these provisions were never proclaimed into force and were subsequently repealed. A review board must hold the hearing every 12 months, unless extended to 24 months, until the accused is discharged absolutely. Accused unfit to stand trial. The issue of mental disorder may also come into play before a trial even begins if the accused's mental state prevents the accused from being able to appreciate the nature of a trial and to conduct a defense. An accused who is found to be unfit to stand trial is subject to the jurisdiction of a review board. While the considerations are essentially the same, there are a few provisions which apply only to unfit accused. A review board must determine whether the accused is fit to stand trial. Regardless of the determination, the review board must then determine what conditions should be imposed on the accused, considering both the protection of the public and the maintenance of the fitness of the accused, or conditions which would render the accused fit. Previously an absolute discharge was unavailable to an unfit accused. However, in R.V. Demers, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the provision restricting the availability of an absolute discharge to an accused person who is deemed both permanently unfit and not a significant threat to the safety of the public. Presently a review board may recommend a judicial stay of proceedings in the event that it finds the accused both permanently unfit and non-dangerous. The decision is left to the court having jurisdiction over the accused. An additional requirement for an unfit accused is the holding of a prima facie case hearing every two years. The Crown must demonstrate to the court having jurisdiction over the accused that it still has sufficient evidence to try the accused. If the Crown fails to meet this burden, then the accused is discharged, and proceedings are terminated. The nature of the hearing is virtually identical to that of a preliminary hearing. Usage and success rate. This increased coverage gives the impression that the defense is widely used, but this is not the case. According to an eight-state study, the insanity defense is used in less than 1% of all court cases and, when used, has only a 26% success rate. Of those cases that were successful, 90% of the defendants had been previously diagnosed with mental illness. The Law School of America the content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America